I'm Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. I've been a cop for 27 years. I like to say I got a backstage pass to life. Well, guess what? I got some tickets for you. So come on in, pull up a chair, turn up that volume, and let's go. Chasing Justice is on. Good afternoon, my friends, and welcome to Chasing Justice. I'm your host, Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. So there's quite a lot to talk about today in our pages of outrages. You know, talking about things going on socially in the country, in the world for that matter, I think has value because if we pay attention to what's going on in the world, in our country, uh, you know, like social studies back in the day when you were a kid in school, the whole idea of social studies is that you, you see trends and sometimes you can pick out what's coming uh, or what's going to at least start to bubble around the edges and where we're going. And that's valuable to all of us to pay attention. We also see the continuing rise of violence in the country, right? Now, that's something that could be predicted. You go back to the beginning of the pandemic. I think that as we, as we go forward in time and we start to look back, we're going to see that while that was a major event in all of our lives around the globe, you know, from what was it, March of 2020 until just recently, this, this impacted us in ways that we're still trying to figure out. It has changed our society in many ways. It has impacted uh, human behavior. It has impacted the workplace. It has impacted uh, politics. There have been ramifications still to be seen from this pandemic. So I'm coming to you from the road again today. I'm out on the road, as I often am. I'm rolling around. So we have a rolling Chasing Justice uh, studio. And as I'm going through my, my review of what's going on out in the world, I see that as a major thing, as the, the impact of COVID. Now, I think all of us survived through it, right? Remember when it first started? I was teaching uh, a safety and security course very recently to a private summer camp staff. Because a summer camp really is a school, isn't it? It's, it's just exactly the same kids same teachers only now we're calling it summer camp and they go to summer camp and the kids spend their summer there instead of in a classroom well you get the same kids the same kids with problems the same kids who have issues uh, potentially violence just like you have in your classrooms and now it comes to summer camp so that's why they had me out there which is a smart move uh, i did an assessment for that camp probably in 2018 uh, they were very forward thinkers there and they said, listen, I know you do assessments for schools. Come in and take a look at our camp. Tell us how we can be safer. So I went out, and now they've asked me to come back and retrain the staff and make sure the staff is ready for any kind of violence. So we do de-escalation training. We do active shooter response. We do uh, identifying potentially violent people training, that kind of thing. How this ties into the pandemic, the, there is no... There is no profile of someone who may be violent, whether it's a juvenile or an adult, when it comes to being an active shooter. Now, we've seen active shooters on the rise uh, across the board uh, since 2020. The FBI statistics bear this out very, very clearly. Uh, we're seeing things constantly. Uh, now, I'm going to knit this all together for you. So it's, it's the idea of the pandemic. The trait number one trait that we can see in anyone, juvenile or adult, that end up being active shooters or people who act out violently, 
is we find they have a lack of connection to whatever group they're with. All right, so we have a couple of different kinds of people we have to worry about when it comes to violence in, in any location. And understanding this breakdown is what's going to help us figure out, you know, what do we do? How do we survive and how do we protect our kids, etc. Right, so the reality is um, the number one trait is feeling isolated, apart from, and not a part of the group. So if your high school is the, uh, you know, the, the Bearcats, uh, the, you know, the kid who may end up attacking you uh, does not feel like a Bearcat, doesn't play music, is not in the band, is not on a sports team, uh, doesn't have uh, a lot of connections to people in the building, and is not a Bearcat, right? Doesn't have that connection to the school. And then they may have some other problems, mental problems, diagnosed or undiagnosed mental problem. Uh, and then they act out. There's a trigger event and they act out and they come to school and they end up hurting people. Same thing in the, in the private sector in the world, right? So here's the, some of the statistics we need to understand. We're all worried about the schools, right? We talk about schools all the time because that's where the most vulnerable of our population is in our schools. These are our children. We send them off and we expect them to be safe. Well, the reality is of all the active shooter events that take place, only 30% of them are in our schools. A full, uh, full balance of that the rest of them take place in places other than in our schools. Um, they take place in everywhere else, malls, shopping centers, camps, uh, businesses, warehouses, all these other places. Uh, but we get the most attention on the schools because that's where our kids are. That makes perfect sense that we would worry about our kids more than anything else. So understanding that statistic, you say everyone should be preparing themselves. Everyone should be opening their eyes to potential violence. So when we look now at the, at the two different kinds of shooters that we have to deal with, we have the internal threat. The internal threat is somebody who we allow into our facilities, whether it's our workplace or our schools. These are people we allow to come in. We open the door and let them in, right? Here they come. And then they decide uh, for whatever reason they're going to attack. The external threat, these are people who are not necessarily permitted in our buildings and they come to attack us they show up and try and get into the building to attack us so there's different ways we protect from each one but we're gonna lay out the groundwork here first so 30% of shootings are in schools 70% are everywhere else so we have to everyone has to be thinking about it when we look to the news we see these shootings taking place more and more uh, uh, recurring all the time now. Recently in Philadelphia, uh, a person showed up dressed in military garb with a bulletproof vest, uh, a black uh, hat or a face mask, uh, a rifle and handguns, and killed five people. Uh, shot two children in the legs and killed five people. And they're, they're, they, find, they caught this person, which is unusual uh, in the shooter world. Normally they kill themselves or the police take them out. But in this instance, the police were able to make an arrest, take the person into custody. Now it's kind of weird, this person's background, uh, we haven't gotten all the facts. And I think th there's some political reasons we haven't gotten all the facts, but, and we'll cover that in a minute. But anyway, my point is, is that these cases are on the rise, these attacks are on the rise. Um, since we understand that if people are isolated from us, um, this is one of the number one traits that we see in our shooters. Now, let's go back to 2020. In 2020, when the pandemic started, 
we were told we were going to shut the world down for 15 days, right? We were going to take 15 days to flatten the curve of the disease, which meant no school, no business, no work. Everyone's going to stay home. And if you remember, that was like, okay, that's strange. This is weird. It's disruptive to our lives. But hey, two weeks, we can all do two weeks of uh, free vacation, right? We're going to go home. Um, but we didn't, we didn't last just two weeks. Instead, it dragged on then to a month. Uh, then through March and then it was through April and then I remember the conversation because I had kids in high school uh, was that okay we're going to let them graduate we'll all come back to school in June uh, we'll graduate and we'll recoup over the summer and we'll be in better shape and we'll start back up in September well we all know that we didn't come back in June of 2020 the the lockdown continued for well over another year well if we know that the number one trait of someone who's going to be violent uh, in school or work is that they feel disassociated, not connected to. Uh, well, at the end of March in 2020, and I realized that this was going to extend for another month, my thought and concern was, wow, we're going to keep people apart for this long? Knowing the number one trait is disassociation from an, a location or a group or whatever, I was uh, anticipating based on my experience, my training, my research of everything I do in this area, is that we would have people now potentially violent that were not on the radar before. These are people we wouldn't have thought of before that now may become violent. Right, so I do a lot of work with Campus Safety Magazine. Right? I, uh, I help them a lot. I do a lot of programs on safety and security for schools. And I wrote an article um, about this where I predicted that when we finally do come back, thinking it would be September of 2020, that many people who were not even considered to be potentially dangerous would be very dangerous when we came back. Well, that time frame, like I said, went for another year. And what did we see in the statistics? In 2020 and 2021, there was a almost doubling of the number of active shooter incidents around the globe. Even though the schools were closed, the schools were not the victims victimized because they were closed, but everywhere else was. And then when the schools did open up uh, in 2021, we saw more shootings in schools. And in 2022, we saw it again. So they went from about 25 to 30 a year on average is what we were having prior to the pandemic to in the high 50s or 60s. All right. Now in 2022, they were not at 60. In 2021, they were right? 60. That's doubled. It's double the normal of active shooter incidents. And we see them now all the time, all over the place. Matter of fact, the media doesn't even report them when there's less than seven or eight people killed. You know, it's very rare. Um, if we hear about two or three, well, they just don't hear about it anymore because it's become such a normal part of what goes on. And of course, you have people jumping up and down and trying to take advantage of the situation and push their, their agenda. And one agenda that's out there, of course, is the anti-gun people, the anti-Second Amendment people who want to disarm the population. And the reality here, the truth here for people, which is very hard for people to take because they see the, the gun as the enemy, um, they don't understand really that it's a, it's a crime, it's a human problem, it's a people problem. Someone picks up a gun and uses it violently. You know, we look in Chicago and we see how many people are gunned down every single week in the, in the city of Chicago. Well, that's not because guns hopped off the uh, counters and uh, started shooting people. It's because people pick up the guns and go out and kill each other, 
right? So it's a people problem. It's a crime problem. It's a, and it can be managed. But we have decided that instead of uh, going after people uh, who are violent, uh, going after people who are carrying weapons illegally, people who are committing crimes with weapons, instead of going after them, we're going to uh, turn this around and say maybe we're too harsh on people. Maybe we should let people, uh, give them more leeway. And all we've done is allow violence to run completely out of control in our cities. We've all seen it. Uh, it, So it doesn't make any sense. It's policy. It's policy and and it's foolishness. So recently, the prosecutor in the the city of Philadelphia has taken the opportunity of this uh, mass shooter who went out and shot up five people and and two little kids got shot up in the legs, uh, this person, has come out to say, it's time to sue the ghost gun makers. Now, ghost gun makers are people who make parts for firearms, and then you can buy them and you can put them together yourself. So we don't, there's, there's no indication at the moment that this person who killed five people, this active shooter in Philadelphia, used a ghost gun, but this prosecutor is an anti-Second Amendment person, uh, and this is his opportunity to jump up and say, hey, we got to go after the ghost gun people. And the reality is, well, they got a lot of money. We could sue them uh, and we can get some money out of them. The reality is, why don't you go after people who are committing crime, Mr. Prosecutor? That is your job, not to sue gun makers. Uh, How about cars? Cars kill 30 to 50,000 people a year in traffic accidents. Why don't we take cars off the road? We'll save 50,000 lives. Well, that's not violence. Well, um, it's still 50,000 dead people. You want to save lives, save that. Then talk about firearms and say, okay, right, there are 30,000 gun murders a year. How many of those are criminal to criminal, gang-related, people who are just completely out of control, shooting and killing each other, right? Now, there are a lot used in other kind of events during robberies. People are killed, home invasions, people are killed, uh, people have road rage and kill each other, absolutely. Um, But that's a consequence of, of people's behavior. So getting rid of, uh, you know, going after ghost gun makers, and I'm not in favor of ghost gun makers. I could care less whether they make their guns or not. But the reality is this is an excuse. Here you have a violent man who probably has some mental illness situations and did not use a ghost gun, but here's a chance to go after ghost gun makers. It's It becomes political. And then it loses any value it might have to try and figure out what can we do. And it's really simple, ladies and gentlemen. It's really simple. Now, if you could see me, I'm standing here and I'm, I'm, I'm bending my hand, bending my wrist, right, at the wrist. And it, it, I, I went to a doctor one time and I was bending my wrist and I said, hey doc, when I bend my wrist like this, it hurts. And you know what the doctor said? Stop bending your wrist, right? It, 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 was, a, it was a problem that I was having and it was an easy, obvious solution. Now that's a joke. But the reality is you have crime out of control. You have people using weapons illegally, killing people, using them in robberies, using them in all kinds of uh, inappropriate ways. Go after the criminals. Aggressively pursue criminals. And you will cut down on crime. You know, you you look and you see New York City of the 1970s and early 80s was a nightmare. Uh, Times Square was a a cesspool of sex shops and prostitutes and drugs and it was horrifying uh, you know America's gem uh, was was turned into a, a horrifying place and Rudy Giuliani came in and had an idea that we're gonna fight crime and he went in and fought crime 
He fought crime seriously. He didn't worry about the criminal. He worried about the victims. He worried about cleaning up the city. And Times Square was an example uh, of, of what could be done if you had a politician who had the guts and the backbone to go after crime, go after criminals, pursue them aggressively, right? Uh, in, empower your, your police force to go after them, back them up. Uh, that they're going after crime. And look what happened to New York City. It was transformed from a hellhole, criminal place, to a beautiful city. You know, the, the least crime in all major cities. Uh, wonderful place. I went there many, many, many times. I loved going into the city for dinner, for shows, uh, with my family. You know, it was, it was very nice. But we've reverted back to crime. So let me try and pull this back to talking about the, the pandemic and how this really changed us. Because it was such a major, a major shift in all of our lives, we can see that violence started to rise. We saw a control level from government that we have not seen uh, probably in our lifetimes. Uh, this, this government shutdown, this mandated shutdown, this demand that you take a shot that people didn't want to take, the lying. Uh, we see the, the court decision, the Supreme Court decision, um, that, I'm sorry, not the Supreme Court, a federal court decision that says the government, the Biden administration particularly, was in cahoots, colluded, in other words, with uh, the uh, social media companies to suppress information about medications, about treatments, about studies, about doctors who said, we don't have to shut down. We don't need to shut down. We don't, we, there are medicines we can take to fight this thing. All of these people were silenced during the pandemic, it gave government uh, this huge amount of power. And this judge, uh, Judge Dowdy, I think his name is, a federal judge, he came out and said what was done here was so wholly inappropriate to attack our fundamental rights of free speech. Uh, and the case was, you should read the case, go look it up. And the wording, the way he used it, he said it was Orwellian what the Biden administration had done to silence people's speech. This is a major major uh, moment in our in our history all stemming from the pandemic the politicians especially those on the left uh, used the um, incidents of the pandemic to increase their power and their control over the society it revealed a lot of things very clearly uh, one of the things that you know a lot of pundits will say is that people on the left liberals uh, are socialists uh, you know, we hear that all the time. They're socialists. That's what they really are, socialists and communists. Government control, people, central control. Uh, and uh, the pandemic revealed that very clearly. Uh, you know, you say, how does Venezuela go from one of the most profitable, uh, prosperous countries in the world to a place where they're eating their pets? Well, the government was taken over by a socialist. And what did they do? Slow and steady. They cracked down on rights. They cracked down on their media. They cracked down on what people could do. They regulated them, uh, central government. And next thing you know, they destroyed a beautiful place. This is what happens every time you have central government control over every aspect of life. And during the pandemic here in America, we saw our friends on the left who were in control. Now, granted, Trump was, Trump was the president when it started. Uh, but it wasn't him who was trying to lock down. He went along with them. Uh, he could have been stronger, but we didn't know at the time. Uh, at the time, we thought this this uh, virus 
was going to kill everyone. That's what we first got, and you have to go with your your first information, right? People are dying, and they were. We everybody knew somebody who was sick and dying. And then, of course, you could talk about the treatments, the respirators, and we find out, oh, that was killing people, and we didn't know in the beginning. So I, I give uh, I give everybody a little bit of a break at the beginning because we weren't sure. Immediately, though, very very soon into the pandemic, while there was all this uncertainty about what we should do, what we could do to protect people, to keep ourselves healthy. While there was all this uncertainty, we saw government use that opportunity to swing in and take control. And then, of course, we had uh, Trump left office. We saw the pandemic was used to change how we vote. So people go around and around and they say, hey, it wasn't right. It was the election was stolen, you know. I'm not going to go down the road the election was stolen. I know there were improprieties all over the place. But 2020 is over. We can't relitigate it. All we can do is learn from it. So the pandemic affected the power of government. It affected the violence that has risen up in our society. Uh, at the same time, in a, like a perfect storm, we had the George Floyd incident where now people are out in the streets riding. Remember that? You couldn't go to a restaurant. You couldn't go get your hair done. You couldn't go uh, do anything. But if you were out protesting and rioting and looting and burning, you could get together. There was no restrictions on that. There was no attempt to stop that. And like I said in a previous episode, if you go and read the work of, of Marx and Lenin and other socialists, they tell you clearly how to socialize a nation. And one of the things you do is you separate people, you break down the rule of law, you create chaos, you create um, misery, all of these things that we are just seeing right in front of our eyes taking place. Right? So we saw the election was affected by the pandemic. We saw government power over our lives was affected. We were kept from going to school and going to work. Violence erupted all over and it still persists today, to this day. Uh, so all of these things came out of this pandemic. And now, now that we've gotten uh, the world back open again, all right, masks are, are no longer, everybody's wearing them. Uh, the virus is um, at bay currently at the moment. It's not killing millions of people. People are still getting it, uh, but it's not killing them the way it was in the beginning. But we look at the aftermath of the pandemic and we see what it has caused and how the changes uh, are with us now. So, interesting enough, um, as we see these changes, when it comes to the violence, it has increased. The active shooters have increased, which is where we started our conversation today. The, the school violence has increased. And how are we going to control that? Well, these are all things we need to get a, get a grip on and, and very aggressively go after. Otherwise, it's going to continue get, to get worse. Uh, the other things the pandemic did. Uh, where do you do for work? Well, how many people are out of work and are still out of work today because they got government money to stay home? Because we need money. You have to pay, for, pay your bills. So if you owned an apartment building, you were told you, couldn't, uh, you could not evict people. So therefore, you, the apartment owner, had to pay your mortgage, right? But you couldn't collect money from anybody. And that was, you were told that was okay. Uh, businesses couldn't couldn't open so we lost thousands of businesses lots of jobs and the economy fell apart because you couldn't have people not go to work for over a year and as people started to come back they didn't want to come back 
to work. They kind of liked getting a check and staying home. Hey, that's better than the rat race of going to work every day. So we see that change. There's how many millions of jobs are going unfilled today because people just don't want to go to work, right? You, you, you just can't find people. You look at every business that you can see, you cannot find qualified people or people who are willing to take the job. So you're seeing bonuses offered, all kinds of things. I have a, a young cousin, brilliant young man. Um, in his early 20s, graduated college, works in the finance market, financial markets, got his job after the pandemic, right? Uh, after the pandemic. And at that point, didn't we all start working from home? Didn't millions and millions and millions of people work from home during the pandemic, the businesses that were open? And now after the pandemic, <clears throat> excuse me, we're continuing that. We're continuing to work from home. A couple days a week, we go to the office maybe, but mostly we're working from home. That has become a new norm. People are demanding that. They're demanding to work from home uh, all across the board in all kinds of work, including Lieutenant Joe. I do a lot of stuff from home. Um, so my young cousin, he gets into the financial world, right? A financial world can be very lucrative, uh, but it's a very, very stress-intensive business as anybody that's in it when you're dealing with money, the changing markets, world markets, all that kind of stuff. Well, his company tells him, you have to come to the office one day a week. So, okay, him and all the, the young men and women who work there, they go to the office one day a week, but they're grousing about it because they don't like it because some of their friends don't have to go to the office at all. Uh, and then people start calling people back, right? All these companies start saying, we need to get back together. We need to get back together. You need to come in into the office so that we have a, an office culture, a company culture. Very, very important to, to a thriving business. And they tell this young man, you have to come to the office two days a week now. And he's like... All right, two days a week. And I'm talking to him the other day, and he is making a very, very good starting salary uh, in the excess of $150,000 a year to start. That's a pretty good job for a young person, right? Because uh, potentially your income is just going to go up and up and up, and you'll have a very good life, financially speaking. So I'm talking to him, and I said, okay, so you got to go to work, got to go to the office two days a week. Uh, two days in a row, he goes, no, uh, like Tuesday and Thursday, you know, but that's right in the middle of my week. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't understand the, the way the world worked before the pandemic. You went to work five days a week, eight o'clock in the morning till five o'clock at night, every single day. You didn't, you know, if you took a day off at home, this was a sick day or a vacation day. You didn't get to just, you know, in the middle of your week, you have to go to the office. That's what you did every day. And here's what he says to me. He goes, you know what? I kind of get that, but that's not how the world is anymore. And I'll tell you what. If they tell me I have to come to the office three days a week, I'm quitting that company and I'm going to go find somebody who's going to respect me and let me work from home. Now, when you think about that, that is absolutely an amazing thought process. And these companies need workers. They need people. Uh, I know the owners of many large companies who are saying, well, we brought people back. We're doing two and three days a week uh, because, you know, everybody else is working from home. And our people, our employees, want to work from home. For the most part, it's worked out. But the reality is, uh, if we start telling people they're going to come back five days a week, they'll quit and go somewhere else. So all of these things have changed because of the pandemic. Actual things on the ground in our lives, the way we live, the way we interact, our safety, our security, our working conditions, everything have changed because of this pandemic. And never forget... This was not just a routine virus that came out of nowhere. This was a military weapon that was unleashed on us. So we see the power that there is out there. Um, 
But I, wanted to, I just wanted to get that off my chest. There's a lot more here to talk about. And when we come back, we're going to continue. So stand by. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order, risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Out loud. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix RX nasal solution cleanse. That's COFIXRX.com. Save 20% by using promo code out loud at cofixrx.com. Well, the out loud truth was the rallying call that started it all. A wide spectrum of programming from world and political news to societal, your health and cultural stories. Seven amazing years of news stories, informative podcasts and great talk radio. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. I'm glad you're here. All right, so in the first part of our, our little get-together here today, I, I, that was weighing on my mind, you know, looking at the, you know, how, how do you go forward in any situation, right? Something happens to you, no matter what it is, no matter what goes on in your life, good or bad, something happens. Uh, and when it's more than just uh, an occurrence, like an occurrence might be you got a flat tire on the way to work. Okay, well, you had to fix the flat tire and move on. It doesn't really affect your life. Something major comes along, like your car gets wrecked and you get injured in the accident and you're, uh, you're injured for weeks and weeks and weeks. That's a major thing in your life. You lose your job, you get a divorce, uh, you win the lottery, you know, whatever. Something major comes along. Then you have to figure out how do I go forward from here, whatever it is. And that requires analysis. You can't regularly figure out where to go if you don't understand where you've been, what has happened, and how your circumstances have changed. And that was really on my mind. As you know, I make my notes here, things I want to talk about. Uh, I watch the news, I listen to the news, I listen to America Out Loud, I listen to all the other shows, I go round and round, and I, I think of things that, that get on my mind, and I, and I make these notes. Well, as I start to see them, sometimes you see that they coalesce into uh, a, a bigger point, right? And the bigger point here was I was realizing all of these things, this violence that, that we're dealing with, the economy, everything that's going on stems from that major thing that happened to all of us, the pandemic, right? Uh, and that's where I really wanted to get that, that stuff off my chest. So I did. I think I did. 
and I, I hope you think about it and figure out where you are in life, where you're going, what you want to have happen, because uh, your life, I'm sure, has changed as well, how we do things. Um, this is an interesting uh, anniversary year as well. Uh, this is the 50th anniversary of the all-volunteer American military, right? Uh, there's no conscription now, no draft, and it's been 50 years that we've had a voluntary military, which is amazing to think of the young men and women who have gone forward and decided to dedicate themselves to their country, uh, to, to serve in the military. And we know in the last 50 years of having an all-volunteer force, we know that there have been thousands and thousands and thousands of these brave men and women who have decided to come out and protect you, me, and our families, uh, who have given their lives to the country, who have laid, laid their lives on the altar of freedom, uh, even though they're volunteers. You know, we've had the Gulf Wars, we've had uh, the war in Iraq, we've had uh, all these different conflicts that uh, our American soldiers have engaged in and have given their lives. So these men and women who did this voluntarily, they weren't conscripted. They weren't told, show up at the base, you're being drafted, and if you die, you die in the service of your country. These are young men and women who volunteered to go do this for you and me and for our families. And I think uh, the anniversary, when we take a look at that, it's, it's a milestone that it's, you know, 50 years, half a century uh, of volunteers, and we should salute every single person in the military, uh, people who are serving active duty, people who are retired. Uh, we, should, we should honor them with what they were willing to do. See, it's not like, um, and I say this all the time, and, and I say, you know, well, the plumber doesn't do that, and I have nothing against plumbing. I, I know a lot of plumbers. It's a great business. It's a great trade. We all need plumbers. Um, but when I look at it, you know, plumbers, they go to work, and, and they're not going to die. You know, part of their job is not to die. It's like our first responders, uh, law enforcement, firefighters. Uh, it's not their job, uh, plumbers, to go to work and die. But for first responders, military personnel, that is part of the equation. That is part of the reality and the possibility of your employment, that you may give your life to the community that you are serving. And, uh, and I look at that. I look at my brothers and sisters in law enforcement, and I see the other first responders, fire personnel. Uh, who go into that job knowing the risks, living the risks, uh, and often paying the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, now we see a hundred or so or more officers every year give their lives in the line of duty. Uh, we see firefighters give their lives in the line of duty, and it's, it's as amazing to me as it is the, uh, the military personnel who do that. So a lot of people say, well, Lieutenant Joe, you were a cop. Why'd you do it? Did you go in knowing that? You know? I've reflected on that, and at the time, I knew that was a possibility. I had a very young family. Uh, I was married, I had a little boy, and I was taking the job of law enforcement officer, uh, knowing that, yes, that was a possibility. I mean, um, I had talked to officers, I had watched the news, I had seen an officer shot and killed, I knew that people were, you know, that happened, and I said, I'm willing to do this because, a couple of reasons, number one, uh, I was one of those guys that used to sit and watch the TV and get frustrated and annoyed when I saw a crime or something bad taking place in society. And I'd say, this is horrible, this is terrible, and I'd get angry. And then Mrs. Lieutenant Joe said to me, well, listen, uh, instead of yelling at the TV, why don't you do something about it? You know, what can you do physically? And I said, well, 
maybe I could be a law enforcement officer. Maybe I could be a cop and go help the world. And knowing that, I went out and did it. That was a, uh, a conscious decision I made. And while it was a conscious decision, I also didn't really think I was going to go to work and get killed. But I knew that it was a possibility. I mean, my job include, included carrying a gun, shooting guns, shooting rifles, practicing, physical arrests. And in the course of my career, I had a lot of, um, a lot of crazy events take place, violence take place that I, I participated in. Um, people were, would attack you, would resist you, would fight with you. Uh, I was in a chase one time. Guys had robbed a jewelry store, and it was a multi-town chase back in the day when we used to do car chases. And these guys were hanging out the window firing guns at us as we're driving. Um, and it, it, was, it was something that you didn't quite think about. Um, but the reality was there. there was, the truth was there that it could happen. So as I reflect on all of this and, and I see this 50th anniversary of a volunteer military, I think uh, whenever I see military personnel, I always go over and thank them. You know, you see these young men and women in uniform, you see them in an airport, a train station, in the mall, whatever. I always thank them for their service. Uh, I think that's important. Um, and I know when I was uh, an active duty law enforcement officer, people would say that to me. It's, officer, thanks for your service. To this day, when people say, hey, Lieutenant, thanks for your service. You know, it means something. It, it feels good to be, to be recognized that, hey, you, you did good. You know, you tried to do the right thing. So I think that's important. Um, when it comes to our firefighter brothers and sisters, this is another area of service to the community that we, we don't always think of. We don't always think about it unless there's a fire, right? Then, oh, then the fire department comes. They are known as the, uh, as the bravest, right? In the, in the service world, first responder world, fire personnel are known as the bravest because they go running into fires, right? Uh, police are known as the finest because they deal with uh, people's lives, people's money, people in their people's houses. But our firefighter brothers and sisters, you know, they, they answer a lot of calls. They go on a lot of things. They use skill to douse fires and put out fires. But you know what? Sometimes in the, learn, in the line, of serve, line of duty that they serve to try and preserve life, they end up giving their lives. And recently in the city of Newark in New Jersey, uh, in my state, uh, two firefighters in the city of Newark, New Jersey, uh, were killed in the line of duty. And we should never forget uh, the sacrifices that all of our first responders make. All right, so that, that's a long way around here, but uh, that's what touched it off in my head, thinking about this 50-year uh, anniversary of the all-volunteer squad and the sacrifices that these men and women make, and then all of these people who could potentially die in their jobs to protect you and me, okay? So because this is about chasing justice, um, I like to talk about... Uh, some cases that are out there and, and what's going on. So we know we have the, the four murders in Idaho, uh, the, the college kids who were killed in Idaho. And this, this case is ongoing and there's been a, a man arrested and his lawyers are doing everything they can to pull out every stop to go against the DNA now. Now they're going against the DNA, they're going to, now they want to know the training records of the officers. Well, the reason that they're doing that is because there's a there's a saying out there, and as a law enforcement guy, you know, I've dealt with lawyers all the time. There's a saying out there is when you don't have much of a case, you throw as much dirt against the wall as you can and you see what sticks. So they're worried about the training of the officers. Okay, fair enough. 
Um, if you're a defendant, you have a right to make sure that whoever investigated you, number one, did a good job, was skillful at what they did, uh, and collected the evidence properly. Uh, it is also sets up for a smokescreen for court. Now, that's the reality. A lawyer's job is to defend you, uh, defend you vigorously. And if they, they know that you did it and the evidence is there that you did it, they have to find some other way to convince the jury that something was wrong, that mistakes were made, that put a, put a doubt in the mind of the jury. And in our system, we only need one juror to think uh, something's up. So there's another old saying in the world of jurisprudence and court trials and all that. They say, if you're guilty and you go to trial, you want a jury trial because then your attorney and the skill of your attorney, you have 12 chances to get one person to just see it a little bit your way or they don't like the cops or don't like the prosecutors and think something was wrong and vote no, not to convict you. If you're innocent, you want a bench trial, which means you just want the judge to be the trier of fact and the trier of, uh, of the case to, decide, to ask the questions and determine uh, guilt or innocence, right? If you're innocent, you want a bench trial because the judge can, you know, hopefully the judge is experienced enough. He or she can look at the evidence, see the truth, see the facts, uh, listen to the testimony and say, clearly this person is innocent and declare them innocent. A jury trial, you have 12 people on the jury who are listening to evidence. The jurors come to us from all walks of life, various levels of life experience, education, sophistication, um, and they can be tricked, they can be fooled, they come with all kinds of their own personal biases and beliefs, and you have a pretty good chance of convincing one or two of them uh, that maybe the case against you is wrong or unfair or unjust, and therefore they won't vote to convict. convict. And I think in the long run, while it's not a perfect system, it is the best that there is out there. Because uh, we see jury verdicts all the time that come in 12 to nothing guilty. Uh, we also we do see occasionally hung juries where they can't decide or a jury that says not guilty. Um, pretty clear, you know, the, it's, it's, the, it's the system. What I can say is, having spent my career in law enforcement, having been a person who investigated, uncovered evidence, uh, testified, had to do all that, um, I, I did the best job I could every single day. I went out and did the best possible job I could every single day with the idea in mind, if the person I was investigating was in my family, how would I want the cops to behave? What would I want the officers to do? Uh, how would I expect them to uncover evidence, talk to people, interview, uh, and produce uh, whatever they can to convict? Do it fairly. Hey, if you did the crime, you should be prepared to do the time. That's the bottom line. Uh, if you did it you're, and you get caught, you're probably going to get uh, convicted because uh, most cops do a very, very good job. So recently, uh, as many of you know, have been listening, you know, I try to write and teach as much as I possibly can, pass on my experience uh, to new officers, younger officers uh, out there in the world. So the first book I wrote uh, is called The Interview. The Interview. And basically, it is a, uh, a soup to nuts understanding of how to conduct an effective uh, interview, how to cover all the bases, how to understand human psychology when it comes to interviewing and answering questions and why people don't want to tell you things. And I include a lot of stories in the book 
but then I give a lot of skill techniques on how to read body language and all of that stuff. And it's been very, very helpful uh, to lots and lots of officers who have uh, got the book uh, and used it to, uh, to do their job. Well, I find that other people, non-law enforcement, are also buying the book because a lot of the things in there, while it is a book I wrote for law enforcement, uh, it's about conducting an interview. And if you conduct an interview properly, you will get the information you need. So if you're doing a, a um, employment interview, uh, a job hiring interview, uh, an interview at work, an in-school investigation, if you're doing a, a background investigation, it's good to know all of these skills for an interview. So uh, I wrote that book. And I'm trying to go out there and trying to help. I'm trying to add to the world in a positive way. Well, that's interesting. Um, and the book, you can get it from Blue360Media, Blue360Media.com. I think it's on the America Out Loud uh, book page as well. So if you go there to the website, AmericaOutloud.com, you go there, you can find that book. My second book is, is different. Right? The second book is different. This one just came out, uh, and it's called The Investigation. Right? So basically what's different about this is that most teaching books, if you've ever read a teaching book or a manual on how to do any skill set, they kind of lay out the concepts of the skill. Um, they lay out the fundamentals of the skill. They lay out the different things that you need to know about the skill. And then maybe they give you a couple of examples. And you read that and you're supposed to take that in. And, and, do, and that's how the interview was written. You know, I, I, I do include some stories in there, interesting stories. Uh, based on real life experiences that I had as an interviewer. Well, the next book, The Investigation, when I was talking to the publisher, we were saying, how can we make this different than just a teaching manual, learning manual? And I suggested, hey, why don't I take a, uh, a real life case I investigated and I'll use that as a backdrop. So we'll kind of make a hybrid here. Um, I'll tell the story, I'll tell a little bit of the story of the crime and then I'll stop and I'll say, now let's look at this part of the crime and let's investigate. If you were the investigator, how could you investigate? How could you go about this? And they said, hey, that's a great idea. That's a new way of doing this. So what I found is that just like the interview, people, non-law enforcement people are getting the book because they have to conduct interviews and they're learning skills on how to conduct interviews. Well, the investigation is the same thing. Um, but because of the story, Right, the story is about a brutal double homicide that I investigated, and it had all the all the aspects of a uh, of a of a movie. You know, it, it had so many things. the The person who was the killer, um, first of all, he killed the mother of his child and his 88 year old grandmother. He brutally killed them. Um, I don't want to get into the details of, but he brutally killed them. Um, his family was a real organized crime family though the crime itself had nothing to do with organized crime. His family was organized crime, and that figured into his alibi and all that other stuff. Um, in the course of this, because of things that I said to him in the interview, um, he changed his tactic uh, of, of, as a defendant, and he decided to tell everybody he thought he was Jesus Christ the Lord. And that's why he did certain things, because of what I said to him in the interview, which is very interesting. Uh, and then he went to trial. So what I do is he, he left from one place and he came to the place of the murder. So I tell that story and then I stop and say, let's go back. If you're the investigator, how could you attract this person? What technique could you use? What, what uh, resources are out there for you to tell 
where this person was and when, which is a great learning experience, right, for people. Also, if you like crime novels, if you like crime stories, if you want to understand law enforcement, it's a great book for you too. So I take him from where he started to the, to the crime scene. And then I teach about that. Then I start the story up again. Okay, now let's go, let's get him into the house. And I tell it like a novel. So it reads like a novel, it's fun to read. Um, I don't mean the murders are fun. What I mean is the story is, is interesting and it's fun and it's read like a novel. Uh, and I get him into the house, his interaction with the victims, the homicides, and as he's leaving and he's arrested, and then I stop and say, okay, let's go back now. If you're the crime investigator, uh, let's go back and see what you'd need to look at in the scene. How would you secure the scene? What evidence is in the scene? How would you gather the evidence? Uh, all of that kind of stuff at a crime scene. Um, at that point, we interviewed him, uh, and then he went to trial. And I, I tell the story of that, you know, where he said he was Jesus and what he did. He's in the courtroom flipping over tables and blessing everybody. It was, it was a very dramatic case from beginning to end. Uh, and then I say, okay, you're the investigator. How would you interview a person like this? How would you prepare for a major case in court? So law enforcement people uh, are telling me their, their feedback is that it's an excellent way to understand criminal investigation. It is really helping people do a better job who will serve you and your family maybe someday, hopefully never in a crime scene like that, but they'll be out there serving the public better. Uh, and for people who are not law enforcement, they're telling me that, hey, uh, this is amazing. Now I understand uh, about some of these things about criminal investigation I never understood, right? So when people are looking at a case um, like the murders of those college kids in Idaho, when you have a little background understanding how that works, you can see things differently. You hear things different in the press conferences. When they present evidence, you see different things. So it's all connected together, and it's, it's very helpful, I think, for everyone to understand how these things work. But you can also get that book, The Investigation, from blue360media.com. Blue360media.com, Joseph Pangaro, The Investigation. Or I'm pretty sure that we put it up already on the uh, America Out Loud com website under books, uh, under authors and, and whatnot from people who are on the station here who, who write. So go take a look and, and get one or both. Get it for yourself uh, if you have to interview, if you're interested in crime. Maybe you know a, a law enforcement officer, somebody in your family who wants to be a cop or is a cop, a young cop, um, the corrections officer, whatever, and pass it on to them because uh, they're inexpensive enough, but the information that's in there is amazing. Um, and it really is. I'm not saying because I wrote it, because it's just a lifetime of experience um, put down for people to help people learn, right? And it helps you in, in, in all, all different kinds of ways. And it's interesting read, the investigation. Right, so because we talk about chasing justice, and that's what my writing is about, helping people pursue justice, there's a, a crime that, that really we all heard about. Um, and it, it's, it points out some of the frailties of life, and it also points out the, um, the frustration we have with crime and punishment, I think. And see, this leads back to the first part of, of our show today, uh, when we talk about all the changes in violence. Violence is something that happens out there, um, and hopefully never happens to you or anybody you know, but violence can strike us, any of us, at any time in our lives uh, just because of the nature of our world we have a free country people come and go um, and then this is where policies come involved when we decide to be soft on crime when we decide that criminals are really just good people that are misunderstood 
and we decide to not go after them aggressively, let them ply their trade because uh, we, we have this, this false idea in our head that if we don't aggressively go after people, uh, you know, they'll decide to do good instead of do bad. And that's not true. Uh, people will do bad. If they're, if they're intent on doing bad, they're going to do bad. There's evil people out there. There are twisted people out there uh, who will take advantage, will hurt people. They always will be. And the only way to go after them, the only reality is the only thing that creates a safe community is aggressive, proactive police work. Without that, we have what we have now, where you can be uh, mugged, shot, stabbed, robbed, or raped in the middle of the day, anywhere, just about at any time. So the case I'm talking about um, is a young lady named Eliza Fletcher. Uh, she was a young lady who used to get up in the morning and go jogging. You know, she'd leave the house at 4.30. She was health conscious and she'd jog around her community. Well, last September, uh, she went out for a jog and she usually got home, I guess, around 6.37 and she didn't come home. And her husband reported her missing and the police went searching, you know, they went looking um, and they found her body uh, several blocks away from where she jogged. She had been uh, sexually assaulted and she had been shot in the back of the head and dumped behind a house. Talk about a brutal thing to have. This young lady just going out for a jog. Well, they made an arrest. And it turns out the cops were, were pretty good. They, they watched video. Uh, they had a description of the suspect. They had a description of the suspect's vehicle. Apparently, he saw her jogging. Uh, he was in the area for 15, 20 minutes watching her. Uh, and then at some point, he jumped out and grabbed her, kidnapped her, threw her in the car, drove away with her, uh, sexually assaulted her and then shot her in the back of the head and dumped her. What a violent, brutal, horrible, horrible thing. He victimized not just this poor woman who lost her life, but her entire family and the community. Well, it turns out, when we look at this individual who committed this crime, um, as a juvenile, he had uh, sexual assault, he had kidnapping, uh, as an adult, apparently he pulled a gun on some guy, made a guy get in a car, drive around, and extract money from his ATM. This was a violent, dangerous person. And why was he out? Why was he out on the street to be able to watch Miss Fletcher, to kidnap Miss Fletcher, to sexually assault Miss Fletcher, and to murder her? Why was he out? Well, because what the things he did as a juvenile, and this is a big controversy in our country, right? How do we treat juveniles? Well, I think it's pretty clear. Um, the whole idea is that juveniles don't always understand the weight of their actions. They don't understand what they're doing. Um, and therefore, they make mistakes and they can be rehabilitated. They can learn as they get more mature to control their passions, control their thoughts, and maybe not be violent anymore and to you know, realize what they did was wrong and, and to do good in the world, right? To be a good, that's the thought behind juvenile justice. It's about rehabilitation more than punishment. We've seen that kind of edge into the adult world where it's more about rehabilitation, second, third chances, 15 chances, 20 chances, uh, as opposed to punishment. And I think the reality is we have to delineate between the actions people take, right? Somebody's a shoplifter and all they do is shoplift or steal uh, property from a store. This is not a violent person. They're just somebody, kleptomania, whatever, they're stealers. Can they be fined? Can they be punished? Yes. When it comes to violent crime, when it comes to violent crime um, that, that is so horrendous that it, that it shocks your senses, so to speak, 
Uh, it doesn't matter if the kid is 14 or the person is, is 45. If they do that, there has to be such a substantial penalty, one for the victim, to make sure that the victim, especially like poor Miss Fletcher, lost her life, the suffering she did before she died, and then her family having to deal with that afterwards. Why was this person still out? As a, as a juvenile, they committed an act of sexual assault. They raped somebody. Uh, they did kidnapping before. They had other violent arrests. As an adult, they had violence. Why were they still out? That person should have been locked away until they were old enough where they could no longer hurt anyone. They had made their life the way it was. No one else did it. They chose that life, not their background, not their upbringing, not the teachers, not the people who, who uh, you know, they had a problem with. This person decided to do these horrible, horrific things. And the rest of us shouldn't have to suffer because someone has chose that way to behave in life. We should lock them away until they're old enough that they're, they're not capable of hurting us anymore. And that's the reality. And if this young man had been locked away until he was 65 for what he did, uh, then he wouldn't have killed Miss Fletcher. He wouldn't have been able to, he wouldn't have been around. And who knows who else he hurt and killed, or he would have had he gotten away with this, right? So as a society, we, we have these, these goofy thoughts when it comes to crime and punishment, and we really need to start changing the way we think. So everything we covered today, the effects of the pandemic are, are life changing for all of us, uh, the violence, everything. And it leads to justice, lack of justice, uh, a societal earthquake is what has happened. And if we're to get over this, if we're to move forward in a better way, we all better think what's in our best interest and come together as one and make America a greater place again. Remember everybody, until we meet again, be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem.